7 to start with, Ecclesiastes uh, 7. In fact, in light of what we were just talking about, this will fit in uh, tonight. Ecclesiastes 7, uh, the passages we'll start with will be Ecclesiastes 7, then we'll be in Luke 12 and Luke uh, 16, right after that. Okay, beginning with verse 2, Ecclesiastes 7, uh, beginning with verse 2 uh, through 4. Uh, Jack, would you read that, please? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of fasting, feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living shall take this to heart. Four through four. Uh -huh. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Okay, now look at what he says there. It, uh, on the surface, it sounds like a, you know, a paradox. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. And, but then he gives his reason for it. For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take it to heart. And sorrow is better than laughter. A sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools in the house of pleasure. Um, we started tonight by talking about uh, a wreck last night where several young people were killed. And I'm sure out having a good time. And now, now we've got death and a lot of sorrow. And so then his statement is it's, it's actually a better experience in one sense to go to a funeral uh, than it is to go to a party. And he says the reason for this is that the bottom line is that we're all going to die. Uh, that every last one of us are going to die. That when we party, in many ways we're escaping the reality of life. In fact, uh, a lot of things I think that people do, whether it's uh, uh, when we talk about drugs or alcohol and things like that, I really believe these things are only symptoms. That the, the problem is, is reality itself. And, and in many ways they can be, uh, be an escape from an unpleasant reality. But whatever that he says, the, the bottom line is that everybody is going to die. And we can laugh and cut up and we can party and we can refuse to talk about it. And we can have good times. Uh, but in the final analysis, if you stop and think about it, uh, that kind of kills the party. In fact, one of the reasons we don't talk about death very often is that it's a killjoy. I mean, uh, here you are having a good time and somebody comes up and reminds you, I'm, I'll be 51 in September. And to say, hey, the best part of you is already gone. You know, and that's, that's it. Your best years are behind you. At best, you've got, a, you know, a few more that is not going to be as good physically as the first ones. And that's not a pleasant thing to, to think about. And so he says that though it's better in the, when you go to a funeral, when you go into a situation of mourning, when you contemplate what we did to start the lesson about the young people being killed, it's actually good for you in the sense that it motivates you to think. And so every time you go to a funeral, anytime you're in a situation where there's cancer or a heart attack or whatever the problem, it's actually good for you in the sense, not that it's good, but it's good for you in the sense that it motivates you to think and come to grips with the fact that, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. You know, that there's, a, that there's going to come a time when, when I say bye to this physical world. Okay, now flip over to Luke, the 12th chapter. Luke 12, and beginning with verse 13. 
And the point is the same. Different approach, uh, but the point is the same. Um, Mark, would you read that beginning with verse 13 on through 21, please? Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them, them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself who is not rich for God. Okay, now, look at the uh, statement there. First of all, it was Jesus that was calling the man a, a fool. And notice his problem wasn't riches. There's no sin in being rich. What was his problem there? Greed. Okay, greed was right. He was uh, wanted for him, wanted more, right? And no matter how much he had, he wanted more. And who was number one in his thinking? Himself. Himself. And the problem was, I mean, after all, God prospered him. Uh, but his problem was, that, look at verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but he is not rich towards God. In other words, there's nothing wrong with having something. There is something wrong with selfishness and greed and, and not having an attitude of concern. In other words, that, that as God gives to us, then all of us are in this world are not equally prosperous, and God expects those of us that he has prospered uh, to be willing to share and, all in, and to help out with others. But notice the, the attitude that the man is very prosperous and all he can think about is, well, I need to build all these barns and store and, and have even more. Obviously, he's not thinking at all of the possibility of death. It, it does, it's not even part of his thinking, that it's just a matter of storing up and, and preparing in the same way that we get caught up in the banks or the CDs or the stock markets or, or buying land or whatever it is, nothing wrong in and of themselves, but to just simply live for that as if we're going on forever, uh, Jesus says you're, you're foolish. The bottom line is that you're going to die. Uh, we don't know when, know when. And so any philosophy of life that does not consider death is inadequate. And there's all kinds of different philosophies that, that people uh, are, are walking by. But one way to get to the root of the matter as to how much we really think is to, whatever style of life you're living, is to ask yourself the question, how much thought do I give of, of death? You know, I mean, at best, we've got a few years here, and that is it. Okay, now turn over to Luke 16, and beginning with verse 19. The message is, again, exactly the same. Luke 16 and verse 19. Uh, Steve, would you read that? Uh, uh, let's see. On through about verse uh, 25 there. And Brian, would you finish that up, 27 through 31? There was a rich man who, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, or Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great has, has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, um, notice again we've got two people, uh, one very prosperous, one very poor. Uh, one minute before they died, you'd obviously had rather been in the rich man's place. And one minute after death, you'd have rather been, rather been in the other fellow's place. And so they die. Notice it says in verse 22, the angels escort him in, into Abraham's side. Abraham's already into the Hadean realm. By the way, the word there is Hades rather than hell. Uh, there are three separate Greek words that the translators translated with this one word hell. One is Hades, one is Gehenna, and the other one is Tartarus. And the word Hades is a Greek word that means place of disembodied spirits. It's the unseen. It's where your spirit goes when it leaves the body. Now, hell used to be an excellent rendering of Hades because it was an old English word that simply meant the unseen. Okay, that, but the hell's original, it's an old English word and simply means the place of the unseen. And that's what Hades, Hades was, the, the unseen state. So we see that in death, by the way, the word death, is a Greek word thanatos that means separation. Uh, the literal meaning of death is not cessation, it's separation. Uh, remember Paul made the statement about the wanton woman who was dead while she lives. Well, how can you be dead while you live? She's separated from God because of her sin while she's, even though she's living in the flesh. Uh, you're made alive uh, at conversion simply because you're not separated from God anymore. And life is being with God. And so, at death, the spirit separated, went into the Hadean realm, and then we find them finding two destinies. And notice here, in this context, this was an immediate thing. Uh, after death, the spirit left the body and went into the Hadean realm. All right, the bottom line, again, is that, that uh, we all die. And it really doesn't matter how much that you've got in this life if you haven't did some thinking about this life, then we're pretty foolish, according to what he's, what he's saying right there. All right, now, notice also the, the rich man reasons with Abraham. By the way, Abraham's been dead 2,000 years, and yet Abraham is alive, dead 2,000 years. Uh, he reasons with Abraham and says, if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent, speaking of his brothers. 
And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Well, notice the, what Jesus is saying there. This is before the New Testament. And, and the Bible they have is just the Old Testament. And Moses and the prophets are being preached. And what he's saying is that there is sufficient evidence being presented in the law of Moses and the prophets in order to convince anybody that wants to be honest with the evidence. and says that they won't be convinced with that, neither would they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. All right, now here's an interesting thing about evidence, and we, we get into the fact we've been studying the past several weeks, that faith is something that is based on evidence. Nobody here has ever seen Christ, personally. You, 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 you did not witness his resurrection. And 99.9% .9 of everything you believe, you've never seen. You believe it on the basis of evidence. And the strength of your faith is determined by the evidence behind it, whether you're talking about George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or, or Jesus the Christ. And so what he's saying is that the evidence was sufficient. All right, now here's the interesting thing about evidence. We know that uh, God could just uh, speak to us directly right now if he wanted to. But he's not doing it. I mean, obviously, a lot of people think they're going to get him to or even make claims, but he's not. There's an interesting thing about evidence, though. If God were, as we're sitting here right now, he'd say, you know, Paul, why waste your time talking or studying about evidence? You know, I'll just talk to everybody right now. Evidence requires honesty on your part before it means anything to you. To believe anything based on evidence, you have to be willing to be honest with the information and you have to be desirous of the information. Uh, when you go beyond, when you, when you deal with just the real thing, it does not require desire on your part, nor does it require honesty. It's just there. In other words, uh, nobody here can deny that Joe is sitting on the couch, right? That's, uh, the, the, there's the proof of the pudding right there. He's, he's there. We've all heard him talk and express himself and all he's there. Now, if you come in five minutes from now and Joe's already gone, the only way you've got to know that Joe was here is by evidence, okay? But after every one of us tell you, yes, Joe was here, and you quiz us, and our all our information uh, goes together, and there's no contradiction or anything like that, but you still can say, well, I'm not going to believe that, right? Now, nobody can look over here, Joe, now and say, I'm not going to believe he's here, unless you want everybody here laughing at you, you know, he's here. But let Joe get up and walk out, and then somebody come in the door, and then you begin to present the evidence for Joel being here. And they can hear all the evidence. It can be 100% conclusive, but yet they've got a choice. They can say, I absolutely refuse to believe he's here. They can make that statement. And so it's like uh, you're seeing your child misbehave. If you see it right in front of your face, you have to admit it. Now, I guess I use this illustration because I'm principal of a school. But when it comes to contemplating evidence, and I've had parents where three or four teachers a number of students and myself all saw and heard a child do something and the parents stand right there and said, I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. Okay? Well, that, some people have that attitude with God or with Christ, but you, know, well, you see what you're, you're having there. The person is refusing. In other words, they're copying out, and so by being dishonest, they can avoid a fact. And so God gives us an option. God allows us the opportunity to deny him. He puts us in a situation where if we're going to deal with what is true, we're going to have to seek it, and we're going to have to be honest. And so think of the statements that Jesus made. 
Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I mean, not just anybody, but blessed are they that hunger and thirst after what is right. They shall be filled. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Ask and you shall receive. And no promise to anybody that's not knocking, asking, or seeking. In speaking of his word, he said the seed of the kingdom was his word. And he said, my word will bear fruit in a good and honest heart. And so that God gives us a lot of information. Number one, God give us this body that we're dying in. And so we better watch before we do too much complaining or we, we begin to argue about God's plan. And the longer we live, the more thankful we ought to be for death and sickness and the problems of life because it is, like he says, it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all men. The wise will take it to heart. It is the, it is the process of death that motivates us to seek and to think. But we can deny it. And we can refuse to talk about it. And we can say, get that ugly stuff out. I don't want to talk about it. We can refuse to be honest with it. We can re refuse to acknowledge that we've sinned and, and done the things that have brought death into the human family. But the point is, God is doing his part for honest individuals that actually want what is right. And so uh, when we got into the sinning business, God got into the killing business. And so we were in a body that's dying. But from God's standpoint, that's good. And if we understand it, the writer says it's good because it's the very process of dying that causes us to seek out and say, hey, what is wrong? I mean, you don't go to the doctor when you feel great and everything's going good, right? It's when you begin to notice that you've got blood coming from your body or, or you've got pain or you're having problems that you think, hey, everything's not right. I need to seek something. And so the consequences of sin, the big one is death and then all the other problems, are good in the sense that they, within us, cause a dissatisfaction that causes us to seek and to hunger and thirst after what is right, and that's good, okay? Or we can go through life, and we've had the story of two men here. They lived in a body just like us, and they saw people dying every day. They come in contact with death, and they just went all through their life. They went to funerals. They came in contact with death. They refused to deal with the reality of life and that is that they were dying because of sin and, and that they need to deal with their relationship with God. And Jesus called them foolish. Uh, you can be very intelligent and foolish. And, of course, the Bible sometimes calls geniuses uh, foolish. Uh, uh, the accident that we were talking about before we sat down, okay? I don't know the people that were in that car. Uh, the kid that was driving may have had a, an IQ in the genius category. He may have had their reflexes and, and everything of, of the very best. I don't know. But I know that anybody that drives on a road around here at, a, in, at 100 miles an hour is doing something that's foolish. That's crazy. Uh, he, it's, it's disrespectful of his own life, disrespectful of the life of others. So it's a foolish act whether I do it or I don't do it. And so Jesus says that any person that can live his life and see people dying all around him, and, and see the sickness and the, and the problems of life and then not contemplate what's going to come after death and prepare it, he says that person is foolish because God gives us everything we need to motivate us to think and to be concerned about that eventuality. Okay, so we looked at three examples. One said that uh, it's actually better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting, not because we'd rather be there, not because it's enjoyable, not because it's a good thing, 
but it's good in the sense that it causes us to think and deal with the fact that life here is temporal. And then we looked at an example of a rich man who was very prosperous, nothing wrong in his prosperity. He couldn't have had that without God blessing him. But all he thought about was himself. He was selfish. He was greedy. Uh, he didn't give God the time of day or anybody else. And God called him a fool because he didn't take into consideration uh, something beyond uh, the, the, the here and now. And then we have the rich man in Lazarus. And again, uh, a fellow that's conducting himself in a very foolish way in that he doesn't consider the future. Actually, anytime we do anything for the sheer enjoyment of now without considering its future consequence, that's a foolish act. I don't care what it is. That if, uh, if we are going to do something, I don't care how enjoyable it is to us right now. Obviously, every wrong thing has something to offer or people wouldn't do it, right? But I suggest to you, if you look at the things the Bible calls is wrong, they do have something to offer, or people wouldn't do it. But if you look at what they offer, their offering is always something that is in the immediate thing. It is fun in the immediate, but the long range is something but fun. And so the wise person, according to Jesus, is one that is looking down, considering the future, and again, remember that with all the mistakes that we make in life, God is patient with us, and as Peter said, he's long-suffering. He doesn't wish any would perish, wants all to come to repentance. And so God is hoping that all of these consequences that we have in life will motivate us to change our course in life. Okay, now, come over to John 3. And so we've looked at death. We look now at uh, God's way out and the real meaning of Jesus in the process. Uh, Chuck, would you read that verse 16 through uh, 21, please? John 3? Yes. Uh -huh. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Okay, now look at a few statements there. <clears throat> God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then look at that next statement. In verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. He didn't come to condemn, but to save all right, now notice that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. We sometimes speak of some judgment thing out in the future where you'll get condemned or saved or whatnot. You stand condemned right now if you're not in Christ. Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody. We already stood condemned, and anybody that believes that we didn't stand condemned, all they have to do is look around them and try to find somebody that's living. We're all dying. Uh, we, we got condemned way back right, in the right out of the garden, and got kicked out of there because of our sin. 
and, we, and we've been just dying for all those years and we continue to die so we when Jesus came to the earth he didn't come to condemn the world the earth already stood condemned and we are already separated from God in other words you can't be united with God and die all the word separate it, it literally I mean the death is separation and so it's sin it separates us from God and so we already were condemned so Jesus didn't come to condemn us he came to save us okay and then he came as a light and he says that those that love light will come to him now it's interesting that uh, we're all made an image of God I don't care how bad we are we're made an image of God and that's why that even though I might be living a lifestyle that's wrong inwardly identify with what's right I'm made an image of God and so in fact when Jesus came the people that heard him the quickest were the harlots and the publicans the tax collectors and, the, and some of the religious leaders were the people that were the slowest and did not even respond because they wouldn't even, wouldn't even recognize their condition. And so here we are, we, we live in a body, and I don't care what we're doing that's wrong, uh, you know, all of us, obviously, anybody, we know none of us is perfect, why? We're all, we're all dying, aren't we? We're, we're, I mean, that's what kills us is sin, and obviously that anytime I think I'm pretty good, all I got to do is take a look at this dying body. And, it, and it's not dying because I'm a great person. So we're, we're dying and we stand condemned because of sin. But inwardly we're made in the image of God. And so when Jesus comes, now they saw him, these people were looking at him. You and I look at him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we see a certain character there. And we read that and inwardly we find ourselves identifying with this. And we say, hey, that's the only time I've ever in all my life come in contact with perfection. Uh, here's the man that had the, the, he did the right thing every single time. He always said the right thing. I can't think of, in other words, have you ever read anything? Well, think of just everybody you know. I don't care who they are, how good they are. Can't you think of some way for anybody you know to improve? Barbara still thinks she can improve on me. We've been married 27 years and I get a lecture about every now and then where we make a good husband out of me and you all go, or a good wife or whatever it is uh, and the, the child never completely pleases the parent right and the parent never completely pleases the child suffice it to say we all know we're imperfect and we all know I, I sure wouldn't throw the floor open and say hey how, those of you that know me can you think of any way I can improve because I know you can you see but now think of Jesus try to think of some way you would improve him Think of all the situations he dealt with. Uh, think of uh, the, the way he talked, the way he lived his life, the way he treated people. Uh, when it comes to human characters, uh, I don't even know that any human being it's possible to put it all together the way he did. That the people I know that are extremely merciful and kind and generous and all tend to sometimes lack a little bit when it comes to firmness and, and standing up. And the people I know that's very firm and always ready to stand, they tend to lack a little bit maybe when it comes to the mercy and things like that. And it's just hard to put those things together, mercy and kindness and, and love and at the same time firmness and justice and, and always doing the right thing. It's, it's hard to pull that all, all together. And yet he did it. Uh, he, he looked religious leaders in the face and called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. Uh, and yet he was... He was kind towards the, the harlots and the publicans and, and by the thousands, no matter 
uh, no matter how bad you were, you didn't feel uncomfortable around him, even though he was condemning your sin. That he, he somehow knew how to do it in such a way that he let you know that he, that he loved you. And so that Jesus comes, he is the light. And so those that no matter how bad we are, those of us that are hungering and thirsting for what's right find ourselves attracted to him. Okay, and that's why that for 2,000 years people have been reading this book it's been translated into every single language in the world. In every place you take it, people inwardly identify with that personality. There's just never been anything like it that's hit this earth. So Jesus there is offered uh, as eternal life for us. That uh, The story is that he took our sins upon himself. He gave himself for us. If we're willing to repent and trust in him, then we can have eternal life. Now, here's the next part of the lesson. We've been talking about this for uh, uh, several weeks on evidences. We all know we're dying, right? So obviously, then, anybody knows they're dying, this part has to sound good to you, right? But I suggest to you the only way that it, it will ever really mean anything to you in a concrete way uh, no matter how good it sounds, in fact, to be honest with you, from my standpoint, I remember when I first got old enough to really think and contemplate death and think about the claims of Jesus and eternal life, to me it actually sounded too good to be true. I mean, it just sounded too good to be true that, that what are you actually saying, that, that even as, as bad as I am, that, that I can simply repent of my sins and put my trust in that sacrifice and everything is forgiven, all the mistakes, all the blunders, uh, they're all forgiven, and that as long as I keep my trust in him and keep on repenting and maturing, that, that I can live forever. You know, that sounds, uh, and that I can go to the grave and know that's not the end, that, I, that all it was is a passage to a better place, that my spirit leaves the body and heads into a better situation. Well, to me it sounded too good to be true. It's something I'd like to be true, but it sounded too good. So I'm saying many people make a mistake of coming to Jesus based only on the fact that that sounds good. It, it's, it's like they're a drowning person grabbing for straws, and, and it's the only thing available to grab it. You say, well, what's wrong with that? The problem is that message can never comfort your mind unless you reach the point intellectually that you're convinced without any doubt in your mind. You see, it would sound good for you to tell me right now that, uh, that I had just won a million dollars, but I'm not going to get up and hoop and holler and shout until I get some evidence. You know, it'd sound good to me. Uh, it would sound good to Rose if somebody could tell her right now that that was a mistake and it's not her daughter that was killed. But I don't think she's going to shout for joy unless some evidence is presented to her. It would sound good. Uh, if uh, your child's missing, and you, all you know is your child's missing, okay? It's been missing for a couple of days. And so people began to comfort you and say, well, you know, maybe nothing has happened. Well, maybe that comforts you. It, it wouldn't do a lot for me because there's no meat there. But then you let somebody say, hey, at Two o'clock yesterday, so-and-so seen a child that looked just like yours over here, and at three o'clock, somebody else seen him over here, and five o'clock, somebody seen him over there, and now I begin to feel better. It's, I still don't know for sure, but what am I getting? I'm beginning to get some evidence. And when, I, and when I start to get the evidence, 
it's the evidence that begins to wipe out the doubt and to give me some basis for hope. Okay? So, we, we know we're dying. We're, we're foolish if we don't want to look uh, or consider something else. Because the bottom line is death. I don't care how much money we've got, <clears throat> how successful we are, or anything like that. The bottom line is death, and we're dying. Okay, so we come to the Christian message. It sounds great. It sounds almost too good to be true. And many people reach out and respond just on the fact that it sounds good, and that's great. But then the question is, when you respond based on that, what happens tomorrow when you find out that you, you do have heart problem, or you do have cancer, and the doctor says it's terminal, or you reach this point where you're in your 70s, and you know at best you don't have <coughs> much left, uh, how, how do you feel? How confident do you feel of death based on embracing a message just because it sounds good? And I suggest to you that, like when we studied last week, the Apostle Paul, the reason that man was so willing to die for his belief and to sacrifice for it is because what Christianity offered was not just a wild hope to him. It wasn't something that just sounded good. He was absolutely positive that it was. And God doesn't want you and me to go through life with some wild hope, thinking it's so, grabbing at Christianity like a drowning man, grabbing at straws, God wants us to know and, and reach the point like Paul did at the end of his life when he says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've entrusted to him. And so we, that drives in the importance to our mind of examining the evidence itself. And now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, remember, this is the third in this series uh, on the resurrection, the third in the series. Uh, we've looked so far <clears throat> at the life, the teaching of Jesus and his death. And we looked at the empty tomb, and we looked at evidence for it. And then we looked at the 12 apostles and the change in life and their effect on the world and the, and the fruits. And then last week we looked at the apostle Paul, uh, a man that was a devout unbeliever and a very intellectual and studied person who became a Christian and the evidence for it. And now... This here, this is the kind of information that can do two things for you at least, maybe other, but two things at least. Number one, it's the, it, can, it can comfort your mind. It can cause you to go to your death with confidence. But also, it's, it's the only type of thing, I believe, that, that will cause a person to make the sacrifices in his life to do the things that God would have us to do. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons being a Christian is so easy for many that don't study the evidence or anything like that, and they think, well, hey, I'm going through it anyway. If Christianity is no more than going to church, going to the church building and singing a few songs, then there's really not much to it. You don't need a whole lot of faith to do that, to tell you the truth. Uh, where faith comes in is, is this business of, uh, uh, here's this guy that you don't like because of the way he's mistreated you, and yet you're going to go ahead and treat him good anyway, just because the Lord said so. Or when it comes to your pocketbook, you're going to dig in, and, and you're going to share what you've got with others, and you're going to uh, be willing to do the things that are necessary to spread the will of God. That's where it comes in. Or when you dig into your own life and you, and you begin to look at Jesus not just as a, as a beautiful person, but you begin to look at yourself in a critical way and say that, well, hey, it's, it's God's desire that I, that I partake of that personality and become Christ-like myself. And, and maybe that means that I don't uh, run the race to the nearest R-rated movie or that I don't... Uh, uh, get out here and, 
and do the things that are encouraging the things that are wrong and things like that. And I think that obviously these things have something to offer or nobody would do it. And so it, it's, it's this kind of thing that causes us to really come to grips and God wants us to know beyond any doubt in our mind. Okay, let's uh, look at that beginning with uh, chapter 15. Uh, uh, Barbara, you want to... Uh, <clears throat> Let's see, read about uh, uh, six, let's see, what was I going down through, 19? Read about, uh, uh, it breaks, I guess, at verse 11 would be the paragraph. And Nancy, would you read that then, t uh, after she reads through 11, read it on through 12 through 19, please. Okay, before I start, Pop, when you were talking about when we got, get it, got into the sinning business, then God got into the killing business. I think your example that you use a lot of times is really good that that God had no choice because when man started sinning, we started killing ourselves. And the example you used is if you had six children or eight children or whatever and one started shooting all the others, you'd have to destroy the one that was shooting so he don't shoot all the rest of them no matter how much you love. And that God had no choice, we would destroy ourselves. Right. Can you imagine the world without Christianity? It'd be a terrible place right. to live. Nobody would be happy. Yeah, just think of, uh, along the lines she's saying, that uh, what if you were in a body right now that was not decaying and dying, okay? So the only way you can die is somebody shoots you. Uh, you don't kill you. No diseases, not decaying and dying. So everybody is healthy. And so God steps out of the picture, and he just lets us go. You know, we're going to live. Uh, take away death and the consequences of sin. In other words, God steps in and says, no consequences of sin. Take away death. And uh, no punishment here. What kind of a world do you think we're going to have? I think you wouldn't have one you'd enjoy living in. That I believe that, that it's the consequences of sin that really causes us to think and all. And that God literally is doing what is best for all of us. And just in the, he's our father. And just as an example she gave, even with your own children, you're not going to stand idly by and watch one child damage and hurt the others. You're going to stop it. Even though you love the child that's doing it, they're going to leave you no choice. And so God literally is protecting us from ourselves in many ways and, and designing the whole thing in such a way as to cause us to, to think and come to grips with what reality is. Okay, go ahead with that. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brethren at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, that this is what you believe. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, 
did not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Okay, notice that last statement. If, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. The reason is that uh, the others were at least having their life right now. Uh, Jesus taught to have life was to lose it here and then to have it later. And so he said, if Christ really hasn't been raised from the dead, we're really to be pitied because we're sacrificing and giving up. The point is, the only thing that is <clears throat> going to motivate anybody <clears throat> to sacrifice and do the things that God would have us do is that you're absolutely convinced. Uh, uh, the more convinced you are of a particular investment, the more money you're going to be willing to put into it. The less you convinced you are, the less money you're going to put into it. And so it is with Christianity. The more convinced that you are in your mind, the more you're going to be willing to put into it. As one man said, it's, it's, it's difficult for the heart to rejoice in something that the intellect rejects. Okay, now notice what he said. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news, where I preached to you which you received and, and when you've taken your stand and you're saved on this. Okay, for he says, what I received I passed unto you. Paul, this little statement here, where it says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and then it names all these people that he appeared to. And notice Paul says, what I received I passed unto you. This was a creed. In other words, Paul is really copying something or writing it down, something that has been passed on through the years. This was one of the first creeds in the early church. Uh, Paul was converted two or three years, probably about three years, after the resurrection of Christ. And already within three years, you've got this creed circulating among the believers, telling these various key people that Jesus appeared to. All right, now, the point is this, from the, from the standpoint of you and I, I wasn't there. I didn't see but when this was written and published, these people were alive that was there. And like he said, there was over 500 at one time, most of whom were still living. All right? The acid test of any historical work is that it is published at the time when people are alive that were involved in the events and they can stand up and deny it. And so when Paul writes this letter, most of these people are still alive and they can actually challenge us. And so Paul is actually writing this from the standpoint, go out and challenge it. You know, look at all the people, talk to all the people that actually were eyewitnesses after his resurrection. Now, we noted in the first lesson that our evidence, we're not even talking with them. But there's something else we can look at historically. We not only know what they say, and we can compare their testimony one to the other to see whether it conflicts or contradicts or whether it's harmonious. But we also can see the fruits of their lie. And we noted that, that people don't manufacture a lie that's going to cause them to go to jail and be beaten and suffer and go to their death. People lie to get money. They lie to spare themselves from punishment. Uh, they lie because the truth might cause you not to think very highly of them. But who in the world lies to make themselves look bad or to cause themselves to be killed? And, and yet this very message that all these people were preaching that he mentioned here, mentioned here was doing exactly that. Uh, Paul didn't get a bonus when he became a Christian. 
uh, he got 40 Jews that bound themselves right away and says, we won't eat until we take Paul's life. And the rest of his life was one of going to jail or somebody trying to take his life. What was true with Paul is true with all these people that's enumerated there. One by one, historically, we can document that they all go to their death. And they could have stopped the whole process by simply denying this. And so Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and somebody at Corinth has challenged the resurrection. And so Paul's not teaching them something new. Notice the first verse. I want to remind you. Everything Paul says in this discourse is one that he has already preached and elaborated on while he was there. But somebody has come in and has challenged this. And we've given this example before. It's like the big thing, the resurrection. And so they have become believers, but then somebody has challenged that very strong. And so Paul is writing back and he says, Listen, your faith is not based on some wild tale. It's not based on some vision that somebody had in the night. It's not based on some personal experience. Your faith is based, number one, on the scriptures, okay? He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's saying that, number one, everything that happened to Jesus was told by the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. And you can go back and read those scriptures written hundreds of years before it happened and notice how perfectly they were fulfilled in his life. And then you know all these various individuals and the sacrifices that they've made and so on the testimony, and put yourself in the position of a judge today, and you've got all of these eyewitnesses, and you can compare their testimony, and then something you could never have today, you've actually got prophecy and its fulfillment, and you can look at that too. I'm saying that most judges today, when they consider evidence, do not even get to consider the kind of evidences that you and I have for Christianity. They just don't have it. I don't know of anything I believe. My, my major was history. And I don't know of anything that I've ever studied in history that has anywhere near the kind of evidence behind it as we have for this information here. Okay, now this is just one small part for, for tonight. Okay, let's go back again. We started off by saying that, number one, everybody ought to be interested because we're all dying. And when we've talked before about you and I as Christians talking to people that are not Christian and trying to, that's, we have a responsibility to try and convert as many as we possibly can. Don't let anybody kid you. Most people are interested. And, and Christians uh, so many times are so hesitant or so bashful. But everybody that is going to die has to be at least somewhat interested in the possibility of eternal life. Now, it may be they're, in such, they're having such a good time they don't want to be honest with the facts. But there may be something that happens in their life so that 10 years from now they may be honest with the facts, you know, if, if God allows them to, to continue on. But the point is, everybody has motivation. And so when we go out there, we know they, they're all dying, and they've got motivation. And so it becomes our job then, with all the VCRs and the TV and the ball games and the good times in our country, it becomes our job to get people to think about the reality of life, and that is that we're going to die. And then the hope that is offered in Christ, and notice there's two hopes in Christ. The big one is eternal life. But right here in this life, uh, we, by living Christ in our life, are to be the light to the world and live in demonstration that this is the only way to successfully live your life. You, you can't have a happy marriage, live separate and apart from the principles of this book. You cannot successfully rear your children and, and do it contrary to the principles that are in this book. You cannot have good relationships with people. Uh, Jesus said to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
And I suggest to you, you cannot have good relationships without practicing that. That's the only way you can have good relationships with, with other people. And so then, he, then we get the story about his death for us. It sounds great. It sounds maybe too good to be true. And so our, our emotions want to grab hold because it sounds good. Now, like you've got cancer and somebody said, here's the cure. But the intellect is reserved, and God knows that. We're made in the image of God. And the only way we can have a complete faith is if we have evidence to base that on. And so then God puts the whole book together in such a way that you and I can examine our God-given intelligence, and we can continue. This is one small study, but you can, God's made it possible that you can reach the point where you're convinced beyond any doubt in your mind. And then with that kind of faith, he wants to go ahead, us to go ahead and to accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish in this life. Anybody with any other comments you'd like to make? Anybody at all? Anything at all? No, oh, okay. What? Talk. Anybody want to? <clears throat> any comments, questions, observations? I think the difficulty with the with the the way it is now is that um, you don't. There, it's it's harder to, to uh, or I should say, it's easier to avoid thinking about. Uh, you know reality. Now there's a there's a you can you can go through most days and never have a quiet moment. I think that's never, true. Ne never never take the time to even think. You know it's the available. Yeah. You, you go in the car and you don't you don't even think in the car. You turn on the radio and, and you don't think there. And you and you're, if you got a radio home or stereo and you got a VCR and um, that's the problem. It's just taking the time to, to think. We it, probably it have. It would be more difficult now than before because, but I don't know, I didn't live before, but I don't know. It seems like it would have been easy. You would have been forced more into, into thinking in times past when, yeah. you know, there wasn't. Well, and even most of the world today, I think that we, we live in a very go-go society, and most of our stress is strictly from go-go. And I think that uh, that's right. I think just uh, taking the time to to think, and that becomes our responsibility, part of it, to, to motivate people. Another thing is that uh, it is so easy in some ways to have material things in our society if you really go after it. I mean that, uh, that it is easy, if, if somebody wants to put that number one, there are a lot of things that you can do and people are always dangling things out there in front of us, and uh, it, it is something that, that can be had, maybe different than a lot of societies that even if they went after it. I mean, you could go after it in China and not get it. But in this country, if you go after it, you've got a good chance of get it, getting it, and you know that in advance. Just talking a lot about the faith that you have on evidence, but it wouldn't be very comforting if you just say, like grabbing at straws, and you accepted this because it sounded good, okay? Right. And it wouldn't be very comforting because you didn't have the evidence when you found out, say, you had cancer or whatever. I was thinking of another point in that also, that it's the reason you've got a lot of people. I guess I'm probably as good an example as anything that accepts all of this. But then everything's, everything, you don't have the cancer. Everything's going real good. You know, you're living a good life. You know, or you're 
family, your monetary, your assets and things, then you'll have a tendency to get away from this because you have the lack of Christian evidence there that, you know, I mean, it sounds good and you need it if you're down. But once you get back up again, you know, right, you, you, it starts, you start putting it back because, uh, you know, you're not in, this, not in this position where the Christian evidence would, would hold you there a whole lot stronger if you knew, you know, right. and had more evidence and have a solid, more solid background. Right. I think where that comes in, once you're convinced on evidence, somewhere along the line, the idea of the New Testament is for a person to mature enough so that love takes over. And you do out of love, even if you knew he was going to live forever on this earth, you just reach a point where you, you love God. And just like any time you love anybody, you desire to please the person you love. I mean, that would be a contradiction said otherwise. And so to me, the idea about the cross, like Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. For man believed in God by the evidence. I mean, the, the invisible God is declared by the things that are, Paul, Paul said. And so we had this perfect law, and we had the evidence for God. But in Christ, for the first time, man can appreciate just how much God loves him. That he's not just an impersonal being up in the sky who gives us a law, but he actually loved us so much that he gave Jesus for us. And I think when Christianity really starts in the mature sense, is when we reach that, at first it starts selfish, where we're just concerned about dying and we want out of here. You know, we'd like the opportunity for eternal life. But then I think the idea is for us to grow and develop, and in the mature sense, love takes over. And it's sort of like you rearing your own children. When you first bring a child on the scene, children are selfish. And they don't, they don't thank you for what you do for them, right? I mean, you bring that child all the way up to a certain point, and, and here's mama that cooks the big meal and everything like that, and how many of the children at six, seven, and eight years of age really thank and appreciate and know what's involved there? I mean, they just want, and they do. And so, but then as the child grows up and they develop and mature, somewhere along the line, they realize what the parent gave for them, and then there develops maybe a real appreciation, and then love grows. And so I think in the same way, we come to grips with this uh, from this dying body, and we respond and we grab out. But the ideal is for us to grow to maturity to the point that our faith works through love, like Paul said. And then, it, and then no matter how well it's going or how prosperous we are, that we still have so much love for God that we want. And I think that's the ideal from God's standpoint. That I don't believe that, in other words, I'm saying that prosperity has its function too, that like with Job, that, uh, that God wants us in the final analysis not to serve him out of fear. Uh, just like you wouldn't want Betty married to you because somebody had a shotgun to her head. You want her, want her married to you because she loves you. And in the same way, God wants us to mature to the point that, that we serve him out of love. And I think that... Uh, that, and I agree with what you said. It's so easy to get lost in all that that we don't stop and you know think uh, on that. That's what I was saying. That you don't mature, you don't grow. You accept yeah. this, and then you sit back and you don't do anything. You quit your studying, or quit, right. quit going through the Christian evidences. You quit growing, and you don't you don't mature to this point. You know before you can well you can make this transition from uh, being afraid not to or really getting into right. wanting to. Right. Do you see that in the U.S. of our country, too? Our country is based on Christian principles and on religious freedom. But as the country prospered and we became a world power and became more self-sufficient, maybe, then you can see a, 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that is right, Brian, that we were we were at our best as a country on the way up. And when we arrived, we were at our worst. Uh, and that's uh, and that's true, I think, on a lot a lot of things like that. We also have a lot of things in our society that take away from considering these things. Uh, how many of us have ever uh, had to prepare a loved one that died and bury them ourselves? You see, we that used to be the case, and that is for most of the people in the world that they die, the family takes care of it. Uh, now, if they get to hurting too much, we take them to the hospital. They give them pain pills. We get out in the waiting room or we come there, we, we do all we can to remove ourselves from pain and suffering. And then they die and they, then we, we, they, we call the guy in from the funeral home and we pay him several thousand dollars so that he can make them look like a million dollars and put them in a casket. And then we walk in there and we say they really look good and they're peaceful and, and everything like that. And, and we paid that extra thousand dollars to get this casket that don't leak. And he's reassuring us that you could dig that body up a hundred years from now and it'd still look the same way. And that's what the guy said when we buried my dad. That we could dig that body that thing up a hundred years from now and it'd look the same, same way. And so that's a lot different than you have to be with somebody all the time that they're in pain and you're taking care of them and they die and you prepare the body and you bury them. And, and this has been the case all through history. Um, so we do. We've got a lot of things in our society that can keep us from thinking uh, to the to all the information that's that's there. Anybody else with the comments, Joe? Are a big thing. Uh, like today's society, everybody is usually got a pretty good hunk of money in the bank, so they don't have to worry about that. They've got homeowners insurance, take care of the home, so they don't have to worry about that. Right. They've got car insurance, so they don't have to worry about that. So when you get all these things that take care of all your worries. Where does it leave God? Yeah. Well, even our relationships, like you're talking about, some of these things that are good, before all the insurance policies and all, people had to depend on one another. And so in my relationship with you, I knew that if I got sick or something, I might have to depend on you to harvest my field or to help my wife out, and you knew the same about me. Now we know that we just look at it and insurance will come in, you know, and, and take over or, or, or whatever. And it really, I'm not sure that in many ways it's a, uh, that it hasn't been a negative thing, that, that it was good for people to be in a situation where they had to honestly depend on one another, it promoted good relations. Now they say, talk to my lawyer. Right. Talk to my insurance But the, the whole thing of the message here was to come to grips. I mean, no one of us had the right to look down our nose at anybody else. You know, we've all sinned and, and we're all dying. The good news is there, and then God backs it up with the evidence so you can know without any doubt in your mind. And then the point after knowing is for us to take off and to emulate Christ in our life. And then, and then we're not talking about perfection there. We're talking about constant growing. And then to do all we can to, to reach others. Anybody else with any comments?